0: You know, um, today we are starting in Genesis, and you know, um, I'm supposed to be given the overview of the book today, and you know, a lot of sermons, the way that they're laid out is, you know, you get um, three main points, and you get a poem, and uh, maybe a song, you know? What are you saying, Barbara? And a joke, joke, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, we kind of like that. Well, let me just say, this ain't going to be that sermon. (laughs) I mean, that's the closest we're going to get to a joke, as near as I can tell. In any case, there's a lot of confusion in the church today and in the world today. Because people have, well, they're operating with the wrong worldview. And what do I mean by worldview, okay? Okay. Your worldview is a lens through which you understand everything else. And if you are looking at things with the wrong lens, then you have problems. Sometimes that that lens will cause you to see things, well, well, it'll cause you to see things the way that they're not. For example, if you're wearing... Rose-colored glasses. How are you going to perceive the world? You can answer, class. It's going to be rosy. And yeah, that's that's kind of nice, isn't it? But you know what the problem with seeing things rosy? They're not. All too often. Our perception is not reality. Okay? Now, you know, there's some glasses up here. Are these yours? Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, you they're, they're, boy, you know, the thing is, when I put these things on, I have a perception that is not reality. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, some people, when they look at the Bible, what they see is they see a bunch of different stories, and they say, oh, isn't that nice? It's all spiritual stuff. And a lot of people see these things as unrelated. Well, they are related. See, the Bible is 66 books, and it was put together together. By one author. One divine author and 40 human authors. See, these human authors are like pins in the hand of the divine author. And each of these pens is different. They have different strengths. They have different weaknesses. They have different purposes. You know, um, a lot of scholars you know, uh, what, what a lot of scholars I know will do is they'll have a, a collection of pens and you know and you know um you know always pro- american so i I got just cross pens, you know and you know I've got a rather expensive collection of pens and they they um i I think they're really nice, but they're all different. And you know something when you look at the different authors in scripture, They're all different. They all have their own strengths. They all have their own weaknesses. They all have different purposes. And that divine author took those 40 human authors, those 40 human pens, and he used them to construct all 66 books of the Bible for one story. Now, problem is this. A lot of people don't understand the beginning of that story. And because they don't understand the beginning of that story, you know what else they don't understand? They don't understand the end of that story either. And they don't understand a lot of what's in between. And because they fail to see the big picture, They fail to understand what's there. So, we've decided that what we need is to look at the the book of Genesis. Because if we understand the book of Genesis through the right lens, through the right worldview we'll understand everything else that the Lord has laid out for us. So, you know, um, if we're going to understand Genesis, we have to understand the, the pen that God chose to use. In this case, that author is Moses, okay? Now, you know, there's a lot of contemporary authorship today, uh and, and really um, since Jean Estruch in the in the sixteen hundreds there's been guys who said, Oh well, you know, Moses didn't write didn't didn't write the Pentateuch. And you know, they can make some interesting arguments and that's what they are. They're they're interesting arguments. Uh, the, the primary form being what's known as the Graf-Vellhausen hypothesis that says that there's, there's four layers of authors. You know, that there's the, the Yahwist, there's the Elohist, there's the priestly writers, and then there's the, the, the Deuteronomist. Well, you know, that's just special. <laughs> you know, I, I, I read those guys and I think, you know, you guys are, you're pretty smart to come up with that kind of stuff, but You're wrong. And unfortunately, what has happened in a lot of scholarship, and especially Old Testament scholarship, let me tell you, the field of Old Testament is the easiest place to find liberals. And it's because of this. And you know what? It's because they're starting with the wrong lens. See, the right lens is a lens Of trust, the lens of faith. Unfortunately, you have a few other lenses that people are operating with. In the modern period, starting in the 1600s, 1648, really, you get people operating what's what's called a hermeneutic of doubt, where they they're using the quote scientific method. To understand scripture now, I got to tell you, okay, so I, I was in the seminary environment for over twenty years both a both a student and a professor, and you know a lot of these guys they talk about the quote scientific method, and most of them could barely spell science <laughs> you know I I, 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 I I knew some pretty intelligent guys, and one of them that that, that comes to mind right now is a guy. Um, he was pretty sharp, and one of of the things that he would say uh, when he would would read Scripture, he says, well, I know the Bible says this, but science tells me this other thing. My response to him is, hey, um, can you solve a differential equation? His answer was no. I said, have you ever been able to, to... to solve a differential equation. His answer was no. I said, well, the language of science is mathematics. And if you don't understand mathematics, science doesn't tell you anything. That's the reality. And here's the thing. Some people, they operate with this hermeneutic of science, this hermeneutic of doubt. And so they no longer trust what's in the word of God. And they just miss the picture completely. Oh, yeah, they may get some of the technical details right. But they miss the big picture. Because they've got, they've got every aspect of the picture wrong. Except for the details. Today, you have people who operate with a hermeneutic of suspicion. This is the postmodern group. And here's the thing about these guys. They this hermeneutic of suspicion means that basically they operate with the standpoint that there is no objective truth except the truth that they make up themselves. That is a sad state of affairs. They think that morality is relative. They think that meaning is relative. They think that truth is relative. And if that is your viewpoint, let me just say to you that you are sadly mistaken. Because reality has a way of coming up and well, it, of, of forcing you to see things how they actually are. And you can fool yourself for a while. But reality, sooner or later, is going to catch up with you. So if you are going to understand the word of God correctly, you need, to under, you need to understand the Bible through this lens of faith. Not through this lens of doubt. Not through this lens of suspicion or skepticism. You need to understand it through faith. So, if we're going to understand what Moses was doing, we need to understand what Moses' situation was when he wrote this book. See, once again, he did not write just Genesis. He wrote five books. Those five books together are what's known as the Pentateuch. Okay? That is composed of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Well, let's look at what Moses has to say about this. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, now let's look at verse 9. Only be on your guard and diligently watch yourselves so that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen and so that you don't slip from your mi- let slip from your mind as long as you live. Teach them to your children and your grandchildren. The day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Assemble the people before me and I will let them hear my word so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and may instruct their children. You came near and stood at the base of the mountain, a mountain blazing with fire in the heavens and enveloped in a totally black cloud. Then the Lord spoke to you from the fire. You kept hearing the sound of the words, but didn't see a form. There was only a voice. He declared his covenant to you. He commanded you to follow the Ten Commandments, which he wrote on two stone tablets. At that time, the Lord commanded me to teach you statutes and ordinances for you to follow in the land you are about to cross into and possess. See, the book of Deuteronomy is the last of the five books that Moses wrote. Okay, And God said, hey, I want you to write all this stuff down because these people who came out of Egypt are going into this other land. But not everybody was going to that other land. In fact, let's take a look at um, Deuteronomy. And um, let's take a look at, at um, chapter 1. And let's go to verse 19. We then set out from Horeb and went across all the great and terrible wilderness you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us. When we reached Kadesh Barnea, I said to you, We have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and take possession of it, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Then all of you approached me and said, Let's send men ahead of us so that they may explore the land for us and bring us a, a report about the route we should go up and the cities we'll come to. And the plan seemed good to me, so I selected 12 men from among you, one man from each tribe, and they went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol scouting the land. And they took some of the fruit of, from the land in their hands and carried it down to us and brought us back a report. The land the Lord our God is giving us is good. But you were not willing to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord has brought us out of the land of Egypt to hand us over to the Amorites in order to destroy us, because he hates us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose hearts, saying, The people are larger and taller than we are, and the cities are large, fortified to the heavens. We also saw the descendants of the Anakim there. So I said to to you, don't be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will fight for you, just as you saw, just as you saw him do for you in Egypt. And you saw in the wilderness how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way. You traveled until you reached this place. But in spite of this, you did not trust the Lord your God who went out before you to journey to seek out the place for you to camp. He went in in the fire by night and in the cloud by day to guide you on the road you were to travel. When the Lord heard your words, he grew angry and swore an oath. None of these men in this evil generation will see the good land I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunah. He will see see it, and I will give him and his descendants on the land in which he has set foot, because he has remained loyal to the Lord. The Lord was was angry with me also because of you, and said, You will not enter there. Joshua, the son of Nun who attends you, he will enter it. Encourage him, for he will enable Israel to inherit it. Your children, whom you said would be a plunder, your sons, who don't yet know good from evil, will enter there, and I will give them the land, and they will take possession of it. But you are to turn back and head for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. Because of their disobedience, they wound up marching around that whole region for 40 years until they were able to cross over. And Moses, because of, you know, some of his issues, he was not allowed to go either. But he wrote down all this stuff because this young generation was going to go into this land, and God wanted them equipped. With their history. He wanted them equipped with his law. He wanted them equipped so that they would know who he is. He wanted them to have these five books of the law. So that when they went into the land. That they would follow the Lord and him only. That they would see things the way that the Lord wanted them to see. And so part of this, of these five books, the first of these is the book of Genesis. Okay? This book of Genesis, in the the Hebrew, the word is Bereshit. And it means literally, in the beginning. Which is how the book starts off. Now, when you look at the book of Genesis... Here's one of the things that you see. If you look for the major breaks in the text, the first part of the book goes from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 11, to the end of that chapter. Here's something else. The next major part of the book is from chapter 12 through the end of the book. Now, As I said before, one of the things that you find when you look at the book of Genesis is you find it's a a book of origins. And there are three origins in particular, okay? In chapters 1 and 2, you find the origin of all reality, the origin of time and space, the origin... Of heaven and earth. The next major portion. Runs from chapter 3. To chapter 11. And in this. You find another creation. You find the creation of 70 nations. And then in the last part. From chapter 12 on what you find is the creation of the nation of Israel. Okay? Now, now you might be wondering, okay, so uh, what's this about the 70 nations? Let's go, now, you know, the thing is, I'm sure that all of you have read Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at that next week. But we need to take a look at what's in chapter 10 in particular. So let's turn now to Genesis chapter 10. Let's start with verse 1. These are the family records of Noah's son, Shem, Ham, And Japheth. They also had sons after the flood. Japheth's sons, and then it goes on and they name all of those. And, and let's skip down to verse five here. From these descendants, the peoples of the coast and islands spread out into their lands according to their clans, in their nations, and each with its own language. Verse 6. Ham's sons, Cush, Mazarim, Put, and he goes on down. And let's skip all the way down to verse 20. These are Ham's sons by their clans, according to their languages, in their lands and their nations. Verse 21. And Shem. Japheth's older brother also had a son. And Shem was the father of all the sons of Eber. And he goes on and he names all of those. And verse 32, verse 31, these are Shem's sons by their clans according to their languages in their lands and their nations. So you have the establishment. With each of these sons, a nation was born. Okay? Okay. Now, what was the event that triggered all this? It's the next chapter. What do you have in chapter 11? What? Tower of Babel. You know the story. You had all these guys. Well, you had one guy in particular. You had Nimrod, whose name, by the way, means we shall rebel. And that's what they did. God told them to spread out over the whole earth. And what did He want them to do? He wanted them to stay united right there. In fact, let's take a look at what the Scripture says. Verse 11, verse 1. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. And they used the brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered throughout the earth. In Genesis chapter 1, what does God tell them to do? He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill, what? The earth. earth. And because these guys decided they were going to go their own way, they were going to rebel, God says, hmm, that's interesting. They want to make a name for themselves. Isn't that special? Verse 5, the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, from the, down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them through the, throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, meaning confusion. And from this point on, you had these 70 nations that were in rebellion. See, they all had their own nations, their own languages. You know what else they did? They all brought their own religion all in rebellion and this is why you have the next part of this book starting in chapter 12 let's go to chapter 12 verse 1 the Lord said to Abram go out from your land your relatives and your father's house to a land and it says here literally in Hebrew that I will cause you to see see Abram did, Abraham didn't really even know where he was going. But God says, I want you to go in this direction, and I will cause you to see it when you get there. You'll know it when you get there. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Now, here's something interesting. Why were they going to build the Tower of Babel? Because they wanted to make their own name great. Well, how'd that work out? I think that's a lesson for each and every one of us about trying to make our own name great. But God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. See, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you have the creation of the heaven and the earth. In chapter 10 and 11, what you have is you have, well, the creation of the 70 nations that are in rebellion to God. And starting in chapter 12, you have God's answer. Now, when you look at the at the whole of Scripture, there is one story, okay? As I've said before. And when you look at chapter 1 and chapter 2, here's one of the things that you see. You see, man has communion with God. Man is living in paradise. And number three, man has access to the tree of life. That's a pretty good gig if you can get it. but there was a problem where does that problem show up chapter 3 remember what happens in chapter 3 Adam and Eve do what the Lord has commanded them not to do the rebellion begins and in verse 15 Let's go to chapter 3, verse 15. I will put hostility between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. See, this... Is the first prophecy concerning Christ. Now, folks, man had this wonderful situation. He he had communion with God. He was living in a paradise. He had access to the tree of life. By the end of chapter 3, he's lost all that. He has no hope. And you do not see a situation like this again until you get all the way to, to revel, the book of the Revelation. Let's go to the book of Revelation. Let's go to chapter 20, 21. Let's look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I saw, heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God is dwelling with humanity, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. In other words... Man now has communion with God again. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief and crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give freely to the thirsty and to, from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. Okay, so one of the things that happens as you go a little bit further, as you get to verse 9, he describes the situation that they're going to be in. He describes the New Jerusalem and it's this immense city. It's a, it's a, a A square, it's it's a cube rather. It's 1,500 miles in every direction. It's roughly the size of the moon. And it is beautiful beyond belief. And so what you have is this paradise that we are going to live in eternally as we have communion with God. Let's go to chapter 22, verse 1. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the, the Lamb Down the middle of the city's main street, the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. The people will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever. Let's take a look at verse 2 again. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit. So what you see at the end, when you look at Revelation chapter 21 and 22, man has communion with God again. Man is living in a paradise again. Man has access to the tree of life again. You see, the two ends of the book are the same question is, how do you get from the end of chapter 3 after man is rebelled? How do you get from chapter 3 to chapter 21 and 22? Okay, I kind of feel like, you know, the old Sunday school teacher who says, okay, uh, she, she's saying to a Sunday school class, she's saying, okay. What, what is it that has two long ears, likes to eat carrots, and hops around, and one kid says to the other, sounds like a bunny rabbit, but I know the answer's Jesus. <laughs> well, the answer's Jesus in case you haven't figured it out. That's how you get from, from chapter 3 in Genesis to chapter 21 and 22 in the book of the Revelation. Now, Jesus is the center point of the whole Bible. He's seen from end to end. But here's the other thing. There are four other main characters. Okay? The first of these is Adam. The second of these is Noah. The third of these is Abraham. And then you have David. These are all key figures in the story. Have you ever wondered why you got all those genealogies throughout the Bible? Because it wants to... The writers of the Bible were trying to make explicit the relationship between Adam and Christ. Trying to show the connection. Trying to show... That Jesus Christ fulfills all the prophecies. It's one story. And here's the interesting thing. In the book of Genesis, you have no less than ten genealogies. Let's go over these real quick. So, in the first of these, it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 through 426 is the history of heaven and earth. Then, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, verse 8, you have the history of the family of Adam. Third, you have, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 through 9, verse 29, the history of the family of Noah. Then, in chapter 10, Verse 1 through eleven nine, 9, you have the history, the history of the family of Noah's sons. The fifth of these genealogies starts in chapter 11, starting with verse 10 through 26. It's the history of the family of Shem. The sixth of these is Genesis chapter 11, verse 27 through 25, verse 11, And it's the history of the family of Tira. The seventh of these starts with chapter 25, verse 12, and goes to chapter 18, uh, verse 18. And it's the family history of Ishmael. The eighth of these starts in chapter 25, verse 19, and goes on to chapter 35, verse 29. It's the history of the family of Isaac. The ninth of these starts in Genesis chapter 36 verse 1 and goes all the way to chapter 37 verse 1. And this is the history of the family of Esau. And the last of these, the tenth of these generations is the family, is the history of the family of Jacob. You got all these genealogies. They're not there by accident. And do you have to read every one of these to fully understand what's going on? No. But the thing is, they're there if you want to trace it all the way out. This is one of the reasons, this is one of the reasons when you go to Matthew, let's go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 starts off, it says, An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it goes all the way back from, starts all the way with, at, with Abraham, and it goes all the way to Jesus Christ. So that you can, can follow this without mistake. We see another example of this in Luke chapter 3. Let's turn to Luke chapter 3. Now, the interesting thing about Luke is we get a a different perspective because it starts with, in in chapter 3, verse 23, it talks about Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be, and it starts off with the son of Joseph, son of Heli, and it it goes all the way back. And when you get to chapter 30, uh, verse 38, it says... Son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam. And what's the last part there? See, in Romans, one of the things it talks about, Romans chapter 5, it talks about two figures. It talks about all who are in Adam because we have all descended from Adam. And we, as a result, are in sin. We are slaves to sin, each and every one of us. But then it also talks about Jesus Christ, and it calls him the second Adam. And if you are in Christ today, you are no longer a slave to sin. If you are in Christ today, you are free. You can live a life to glorify God. But if you are still only in Adam, there's no hope for you. If you're only in Adam today, now is the day of salvation for you. Now is the time to repent. The book of Genesis gives us the life of Adam. It gives us the life of Noah gives us the life of Abraham. Godly men, but they were all flawed. None of them can save you. They are only the beginning of the story. If you make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life, then you Enjoy being with him in eternity. You'll have fellowship with him. You'll live in a paradise. And you will have access to the tree of life. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I just pray that you would be with each person here. I I pray that, Lord, that you would help each one to draw closer to you, to be the person that you would have them to be, that, Lord, that they would learn to love what you love, that they would learn to hate what you hate, and that that they would glorify your holy name in all that they say and that they do. Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you, Lord, I pray that they would come to you today. That you would open up the eyes of their understanding, that you would help them to see eternity, and that you would help them to live in a way that would glorify your holy name. Lord, guide us. These things in Jesus' name we pray.